please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. Gospel of John, chapter 14, we'll read together this morning, verses 1 through 11. Uh, I don't normally do this, try not to do this, uh, but I do want to share a few announcements here while you're turning there. Uh, Just a couple things to mention. Um, Next week, uh, next Sunday, a couple important things are going on. Uh, In the Sunday school hour, we're having our annual children's ministry teaching and training time. And so we want to ask that all of our members make an effort to be at that time, and especially if you wish to serve in children's ministry. So anyone who would serve in our children's ministry at any level, nursery, Sunday school, VBS, uh, they need to be at that training time and fill out a document saying that they were were present. And so please make an effort uh, to be at that time. Uh, Also Sunday evening, we have our regular first Sunday of the month evening service. As part of that evening service, we're going to do all the things we normally do. Uh, But at the tail end of that service, we're having a brief members meeting, just about 20 minutes or so. And so we want to ask all of our members, if you can, unless providentially hindered, uh, make plans to be at that meeting. The elders want to share an opportunity for our church, something that we actually will be voting on in a couple of weeks after that. And so please make an effort to be at that time. And the last announcement to share is that our elders will have actually our first annual elders retreat this coming weekend. And we just want to ask that you would pray for us. Uh, We'll be spending half the day together on Friday, uh, the whole day together on Saturday, talking through a number of important issues and making plans and seeking the Lord for direction and vision. The Sunday after that, October 13th, in the equip class, we're going to kind of debrief that time uh, with you. So please plan on coming to that time. We're going to share from the overflow of that meeting. Uh, If if you're like me and you've been in healthy churches at different times, uh, it's probably your experience that good and godly leadership uh, is one of the best things in life, and bad leadership is one of the worst. And so please, brothers and sisters, pray for us that God would help us to be good leaders and that that time would be well used. Hopefully now you're in John 14. Let's read together verses 1 through 11. Follow along as I read. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. Where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. But from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Let me ask that we pray once more together. Let's pray. Father, we believe that your word alone is solid ground, that it's the mighty rock on which we build. In every line, the truth is found, in every page with glory filled. Uh, We 
We know it's true as we read at the start of this service. The voice of the Lord sends out flashes of fire. And we also know that when those disciples had been with Jesus after His resurrection along the road to Emmaus, when He was away from them, they said, did not our hearts burn within us as He spoke to us? So Lord, speak to us now through Your Word. Let us hear Your voice. Send out flashes of fire in this place. And may we have the experience after being here for the next 45 minutes or so that our hearts burned within us as the Word of God was opened up before us. Do this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The verses before us in John 14, in verses 1 through 11, contain two of the most important statements that Jesus ever made. Two of the most important statements that Jesus made, and what's more than that, uh, two of the very pillars upon which our entire Christian faith is based. Uh, Two statements that are essential to Christianity by definition, indeed define and distinguish Christianity as a religion and as a faith. I'm referring to these two statements that Jesus makes in answer to two comments or questions made by His disciples, namely Thomas and Philip. Verses 6, verse 9. To Thomas, He says in verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. And then the second statement is verse 9, what Jesus says to Philip. Whoever has seen Me, Philip, has seen the Father. Two of the most important statements Jesus ever made in His ministry among His disciples. I am the way to the Father. That is the way of salvation and the only way. And whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. In other words, Jesus Christ is Savior and Jesus Christ is God. And upon these two pillars, our whole religion is defined. Christianity is defined by these two statements. That Jesus Christ is a Savior for sinners And Jesus Christ is the Son of God, very God, a very God. He is the way to the Father, and whoever has seen Him has seen the Father. This is the essence of our faith. This is the essence of Christianity. Uh, You children here, uh, with all that is important to us to, to want to teach you and to impart to you, this is among the most important things. Uh, that you would know that Jesus Christ is a Savior for sinners and that He's the only Savior for sinners, that He's the only way to God. It is of urgent, utmost, blood earnestness, judgment day importance that you children know this, that you hear this from us. God has made a way in His Son, Jesus Christ, by which you can be saved, by which you can come to God, and that way is Jesus Christ the Savior for sinners. And what's more than that, we want you to know that Jesus Christ was not only a man, He's not only a helpful teacher, that He was not only a friend of sinners, but that Jesus Christ is very God of very God. And that if you see Jesus, if you understand Jesus, if you study Jesus in the Bible, you're beholding God Himself. Whoever sees Jesus sees the Father. I want to open up these two statements from Jesus this morning. I want us to better understand these two statements from Jesus. But I first want us to appreciate the context in which these statements come. Uh, You notice how Jesus opens this chapter. It gives an opening word of 
of comfort. From the get-go, from the very first words, Jesus is trying to comfort His disciples. Look again at verses 1 through 3. Jesus says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in Me. My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to Myself. Where I am, you may be also. Those three verses are often read out at funerals. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Uh, In the Father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you, etc. Well, there's nothing inappropriate about that. But the original context in which these words were given was not disciples dealing with grief over a departed loved one or something like that. Uh, uh, The original context for these disciples was the issue of coping with the absence of their Savior. Jesus, in the upper room discourse in these chapters, is preparing these disciples for His departure. He's he's preparing them for His absence. Uh, These disciples would have known what it was like to to touch Jesus. Uh, John, the apostle writing this gospel, uh, would have known what it was like to lean against Jesus' breast, to literally feel His heartbeat. You kids, can you imagine what that would be like? To put your ear to the chest of Jesus and to hear His heartbeat. The, the man writing to us in the Gospel of John had that experience. All the disciples touched Him. They heard Him talk. They sat at table with Him. They witnessed His mighty miracles. That's all about to change. Jesus says, I'm, I'm leaving, and where I go, you, you cannot come. And these disciples are, are coping with this reality. The Savior's going to depart. The, the Savior's going to leave us. And in their minds, they have many reasons for their hearts to be troubled. But Jesus says to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. In my Father's house are many rooms. I think that's a reference to heaven. My Father's house, there are many rooms. And and, and I go to prepare a place for you. Now, what does that mean? Uh, We should not imagine that uh, Jesus is presently now putting on uh, the finishing touches to our mansion in glory or something like that, that he's just fitting up a room for us, and that's what he's been doing for the last couple thousand years. That's not the idea. The idea is that Jesus is going to go to the cross and to secure for these disciples a place in the new heavens and new earth. I'm preparing a way by which you can enter glory. I'm preparing a way where you can actually be with me in all the beauty of holiness and the splendor of majesty for all eternity in paradise. I go to prepare a place for you. And then he says to them uh, that, that he will come again for them, and he will take them to himself, and that where he is, they will be forever. Now, now these disciples are dealing with the physical absence of their Savior. Uh, they're dealing with the lack of his physical presence. And in that sense, we are in precisely the same situation as them. Uh, we don't get to touch Jesus. Uh, we don't get to hear his, his voice, at least audibly. Uh, we don't get to sit at table with him. Uh, we are struggling disciples like these men, coping with the present day absence of our Savior. And so I think it's in every way appropriate to take these words right out of this passage and apply them to ourselves. So I just, at the front of this message, want to encourage struggling Christians do not let your hearts be troubled. Christ has prepared a place for you in glory, and Christ is coming back for you, and He will take you to Himself, and where He is, you will be forever. 
For the, for the Christian struggling in the fight with sin, uh, sometimes defeated and often discouraged, and you so long to be rid of this body of death, Christ hasn't forgotten about you. He's coming for you, and you're going to be with Him forever in glory. Uh, to, to the Christian struggling with depression and discouragement, and all you see on the horizons of your heart and your life are dark clouds, Jesus has not forsaken you. He's not forsaken you. He's coming for you. And one day, He's going to take you to Himself in a way so much more glorious than what the Apostle John experienced at Jesus' breast. He's going to take you to Himself in paradise. And all depression and clouds and tears will be gone. To the Christian struggling in an embattled marriage, and you're seeking to love God and serve God and do what's right and love your spouse, you're not forsaken by Christ. Uh, he is still for you. He is still with you. Do not let your heart be troubled. His eye is on you, and He's for you, and the day is coming when He will take you to Himself, and you will be with Him forever. The Christian struggling with the assaults of old age. Someone has said old age, growing old, is like a series of losses. A series of losses. Just losing this opportunity and this function and this ability little by little by little. Our bodies are decaying, aren't they? And it can be overwhelming. What seems so stable and so sure is no longer that way. And you could be struggling, feeling overwhelmed and defeated and, 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 and where your, your physical ailments interact with your soul's ailments and your emotional uh, weaknesses and all of that is not always clear and you're struggling and you feel overwhelmed. The Lord Jesus has not forgotten about you. He's not with you now to hold your hand, but He has prepared a place for you. And He's not forgotten about you. And he's coming for you. So brother, sister, do not let your heart be troubled. Christ is coming again and He will take you to Himself and you will be with Him forever in paradise. But now to the two most important things Jesus ever said. The first is this. Uh, Jesus said that He is the only way to the Father. Jesus is the only way to the Father. Let's read this again in verses 5 through 7. Uh, Thomas said to Him, Lord, we do not know where You are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is one of those statements, kind of one of those um, epitome texts in the Bible, capstone texts, that in a very concise way, muscular way, capture so much of the essence of the Christian faith. Jesus says to Thomas, I am the way to the Father. Now, I do think, for reasons I won't explain in this sermon, but happy to talk to you afterwards about this, uh, I do think the idea that Jesus is the way is the main idea, that truth and life are subordinate ideas. Uh, you might say Jesus is the way precisely because He's the truth. He's the Word of God, the Word made flesh, and He reveals the Father. He's the truth of God, and the truth sets us free, of course. He's the life of God. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And we enter into the life of God by way of Jesus. But I think those are subordinate ideas. I, I think that, that Jesus being the way is sort of the big issue in this text, and that's what's expounded. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by this way, except by me. I think that's the central issue. So in what sense is Jesus the way to the Father? 
It's the way to the Father in two senses. So there's two statements we're expounding this morning. Verse 6, I am the way to the Father, and now these are two subpoints. Okay, what does that mean, that Jesus is the way to the Father? Well, first of all, very plainly means that Jesus is the only way of salvation for lost humanity. A Jesus is the only way of salvation for lost humanity. Zach, it feels unusually warm in this room. Can you turn the air down a degree or two? I would appreciate that, brother. Jesus is the only way of salvation for lost humanity. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Okay? <laughs> Jesus is the only way of salvation. Uh, what would that have meant to these first disciples? You have these 11 Jewish men now. Judas is long gone. You have these 11 Jewish men. What would it have meant for them to hear from Jesus that he's the way? Now, when we hear that phrase in a pluralistic society, a postmodern society, where we're told there are many ways to God, we immediately start thinking about the exclusivity of the gospel and the fact that you can't be saved by Islam or Buddhism or Sikhism or these other, other ways. This would not have been a predominantly pluralistic culture. That, that's a more modern phenomenon to think that, that there are many ways that, quote, coexist by which we can all get to God. Most religions would have been exclusive, would have claimed we are the only way to God. And so for these disciples, they hear, I am the way to the Father. I'm the only way to the Father. And what would that have meant to them? Well, these men would have been told for most of their lives that the way to the Father was through Moses. That if you wanted to come to God, you, you came to him through obedience to the Mosaic law and adherence to the old covenant system. Uh, to, to the strictures of the old covenant. That would have been the way of access to God. Now, I'm going to step away from the sermon for a second and just clarify a very important issue, okay? That is never what the Bible taught in the Old Testament. That's a distortion of what the Bible taught. But I think the disciples would have been taught that distorted understanding. So you see this in a, a verse like John 5, 39, Jesus speaking to the Jewish leaders and the religious authorities. He says, you search the Scriptures, meaning the Old Testament, because you believe that in them you have eternal life. You found a way, you think, to eternal life, but it is they that testify to me. So there's, there's a way you miss. There's a way the Old Testament should be read, and here's the distorted way you're reading it. You, you've tried to access God through obedience to the Mosaic law. That was not the way outlined in the Old Testament by which people were saved. You know this, right? No, no saint was ever saved by obedience to the law. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Always been saved through faith. Moses was saved through faith. Abraham was saved through faith. David was saved through faith. They believed the promises of God with whatever clarity they had at that point. I don't think Abraham knew the name of Jesus, but, but he did have a promise that through his seed all the nations of the world would be blessed and God would bring about deliverance for the nations through this promise and he trusted what God was going to do to bring about salvation. He believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. And yet, by the time you get to Jesus' day, we're very far removed from that understanding of faith and salvation. Many of these Pharisees would have believed my external obedience to the Mosaic prescriptions is what secures me eternal life with God. Well, then Jesus comes in with a statement like this, I am the only way to the Father. And it says something to the distorted way of understanding the Scriptures and the proper way of understanding the Old Testament Scriptures. Stunning implications for both perspectives. To the distortion, it's quite obvious, 
Anyone who would say you can be made right with God through obedience to the law and through religious formalism, you're wrong. There's only one way to the Father. There's only one way by which you can be made right with God, and it's through me, Jesus says. If you're going to have access to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it will have to come through me. I am the only mediator between God and man, not Moses, uh, not the Ten Commandments, not the prophets. If you want God, the God of the Scriptures, if you want eternal life, you will have that through me, Jesus is saying. But then what about the, the accurate reading of the Old Testament, which probably the disciples had discerned, uh, that they were saved through faith? Stunning implications for this view as well. Jesus is saying everything the Old Testament pointed to, that way that was outlined, that that, that seed of the woman who would crush Satan's head, the seed of Abraham who would be a blessing to the nations, uh, uh, the prophet who is greater than Moses, the son of David who would establish justice and salvation in the world and reign on his father's throne forever. I am that one. I am that way. I am the culmination and the climax of all the hopes of the Old Testament. The way to the father that was promised in the Old Testament in seed form is revealed in me. That way has a name, and that name is Jesus. This way, brothers, that you have been hoping in and looking for, the dawning of the Son of God, the anointed one, the Christ, I am that way. And the time has come now that you will know my name, you will know my rule and my authority, you'll know my law, you will be my disciples, you will follow me. I am the way to the Father. So, so in these disciples' ears, when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except to me, they would probably be thinking about the way of Moses that was commended in their day. But what about for us? Uh, we hear that verse, and, and we think about our pluralistic age. Well, if it's true that Jesus is the only way to the Father, and you can't get to God through the law of Moses, I guarantee you, you can't get to Him by any other way. What we also learn in this statement from Jesus is that you cannot get to God through another religion, another system of belief, or some sort of code of ethics. There is only one way to the Father, and it is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 4, verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 1 Timothy 2, 5, the only mediator between God and man is the man Christ Jesus. Uh, not Buddha, not Muhammad, not some New Age philosopher, not Oprah Winfrey. You can't get to God through anyone except through Jesus Christ, the God-man. Jesus is the only way to God. Now, 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 that statement in our day and age, I'm well aware, I'm sure you are, is a remarkably or at least perceived as a remarkably arrogant and pompous and bigoted way to talk. You're saying that your way, that your religion is the only way to God. Listen, that has not been a radical statement throughout human history. All religions believed that. It's a modern phenomenon that people can say, oh yeah, sure, all these various paths, they all kind of wind around. We all get to God through, through our own way. We all get to Him somehow. 
But if you go into college campuses now or into your workplace or with your lost relatives and say, look, there's only one way you can experience heaven. There's only one way you could have eternal life. There's only one way you can get to God. And it's through what my pastor preaches on Sunday mornings. It's through the Christian faith. Oh, be prepared. And that's a bigoted thing to say in our day and age. So I ask you, I mean, do you believe that? And are you prepared to endure opposition for this basic tenet of our faith, that there is no name under heaven by which someone can be saved except through the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you ready to actually say there are countless millions, even billions across the world who are perishing because they do not know the name of Jesus Christ? Do you actually believe that? Jesus is saying, I'm the only way. I'm the only way to the Father. There's no other way to get to God and to get to heaven and to get to everlasting life. Can you imagine meeting God on the last day? And, and, and he says to you, by what way did you come to me? Did you come by way of my son? And you say to him, well, no, I made my own way. Well, then you could imagine God saying to you, Ah, but there is no other way. And don't you think that if there were another way, I would have found it. I gave my only begotten Son, uh, sent Him into the world in human flesh, the indignity of God becoming man. And He suffered and He went to the cross and there on the cross, I laid upon him the sins of all my people. And I poured out my wrath full strength. Such that he even cried out, my only son from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you know what? I did forsake him. I turned my face from him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. I crushed my son. Don't you think if there was another way, I would have found it. How dare you despise the blood of my son? Brothers and sisters, there is no other way. Jesus is the way to the Father. He is the way, the truth, and the life. I was talking to a couple of young people recently, and they encountered these particular objections as these young Christians were trying to be faithful in sharing uh, the gospel. This one young man was sharing to a young lady in his life about Christ. I think this young lady was maybe Muslim, and, and she made this statement back to him, but, well, are, are you saying that, that I'm going to hell? Now, what's the answer to that question? The answer is, no, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying to you is you don't have to. You don't have to go to hell. There is a way in Jesus Christ by which you can be saved. Of course, if you reject that way foolishly, you will go to hell. But if you hear what I'm saying to you and lay hold of the provision God has made, you won't go to hell. You'll experience eternal life. You'll be where He is forever. The other conversation, someone was saying, well, you Christians are just saying you have a corner on truth, don't you? You just have this little hidden way. You have your corner on truth. That's not the case at all. We put the truth out there for everybody to see. The truth is on free parking, okay? Anyone could have access to this way that God has provided. See, in our pluralistic age, what from Jesus was meant to be, I think, a very positive statement 
has become a very negative one. But see, Jesus is not saying to Thomas, Thomas, I have found a very small crack. I found a very hidden, obscure way intended to exclude as many people as possible. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying where there was no way, a way has been made. Where the door might have been shut and locked forever and God's justice been completely satisfied, a way has been made, provision has been made in Jesus Christ. We're not trying to be bigots. We're not trying to exclude anybody. In fact, if we had our way, we'd include the whole world. And so we offer Christ freely to you saying, there is a way by which you can be reconciled to God. There were Gentiles and nations of the world, as Ephesians 2 says, who were without hope and without God in the world. But now in Jesus Christ, there is a way by which anyone can be saved. There is a way to the Father. There is unfettered access to Him. If you come to the doors of heaven with Jesus Christ's name on your lips, you're in. If you come to God with faith in the Lord Jesus, you're in. If, if you come to God pleading the blood of the Savior, a way has been made for you. You will experience eternal life and fellowship and communion with God forever in the presence of the Lord Jesus. What's more, this statement, I am the way to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me is the lifeblood of missions. It's the lifeblood of missions. The denial of this statement is the death of missions. Listen, if there are other ways by which Kenyans can be saved than Jesus Christ, Randy Pizzino's wasting his life. If there's other ways by which men and women in North Ghana can be saved, we ain't given any money to Evans and Jeanette, I can tell you that. We're fools to do that. But if there's only one way, and if His name is Jesus, and if that way is the gospel that we have been given to steward and to cherish and to share with the world, then it's worth every cost, every sacrifice, to go to the world and tell of that way that is in Jesus Christ. You know that old missions hymn, we don't really sing it here, it used to be very well known, we have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Spread the tidings all around. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Bear the news to every land. Climb the steeps, cross the waves. Onward is our Lord's command. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. We go to a lost and dying world with John 14, 6 on our lips, saying, I plead with you. Enter by this way. A way's been made for you. You need not perish. You need not die. You need not go to hell. God has made a lavish provision in His Son who is the way, the truth, and the life. And you can come to the Father through Him. You're not getting to Him by any other way. But there is a way by which you can be saved. And His name is Jesus. And His gospel is the good news of free grace. That for all those who repent of sin and believe on the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, you will be saved. That took far too much time. There's a second thing I think that we're meant to understand from this statement in John 14, verse 6. So we're not yet on that second statement, first statement, subpoint two. And that is that Jesus is not only the only way of salvation for the lost, He is the only way for communion with God for believers. So I'm not talking about salvation now. You enter by Jesus and you continue by Jesus. 
So, so, so we need always, brothers and sisters, to know the Father, to see the Father, to enter into communion with God, to walk with Him, and you don't stop accessing the Father by Jesus after you're converted, but rather your whole life is lived in the context of accessing God through His Son. So Jesus is not only the only way of salvation, He's the only way of communion, of, of sanctification, of growing in grace. We never cease to access God by the way of Jesus. This is, by the way, why we pray in Jesus' name. Uh, you have no right to talk to God lest you come, or excuse me, unless you come through His Son, the Lord Jesus. It's not just a tag we do at the end of the prayer. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. No, it's saying, God, I am coming to you by the appointed way you have given to us. The gracious, lavish, glorious way that you have given to us. We come to you by your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. That name under heaven by which we're saved, by which we've been given access to you in prayer. So, so I'll just say this. I'm sure everyone has good intentions, but I've heard a few times in, in prayer, even here in our church, uh, sometimes the, the prayer will be, you know, we're praying to the Father. Father, we bless you. We thank you. Father, we pray for this and for that. And very quickly we end the prayer. And in your name we pray, amen. Now, I'm sure God knows what you mean, but that's not a Christian prayer. We do not pray in the Father's name. His is not the name given under heaven by which we may be saved. The Father has made a way in His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's be particular about this, that we are going to go to the Father through the way He has given in His Son and pray in Jesus' name, that only way by which we access the Father. And then let's live out our communion with God, our walk with God, always through our great high priest, the Lord Jesus, who is the way of access to God, not only at our conversion, but forever and always. All right, now the second major statement that we're given in John 14. The first is in verse six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the only way of salvation for the lost, only way of communion with God for believers. Now the second statement, it's in verse nine, but let's pick up in verse eight. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father, and that's the statement. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Philip, how could you say, show us the Father? Have I been with you so long and you don't yet understand? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, how many times have we said this in the series in John? If you want to know God, study Jesus. What is God like? What does He say? How does He behave? What are His works? Study Jesus. I want to experience greater intimacy with God. Study Jesus. Philip, whoever has seen me, has seen the Father. Do you remember the prologue of the gospel in those first 18 verses? The very last verse, 
verse 18. No one has seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. The old translation said, in the bosom of the Father. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. That is to say, Jesus Christ, who is very God of very God, that Word that was in the beginning with God and who was God, He has revealed the Father. The, the, word is, the Greek word is the word from which we get our English word exegesis. I exegete a passage, I open up its meaning, I make it plain and visible for all to see. Jesus exegetes God, discloses Him, reveals Him for all to see, such that if you see Jesus, you've seen the Father. Because He is in the Father, and the Father is in Him, and the Word who became flesh, the, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has disclosed God, He's exegeted God, He's explained God. And we don't see Him in all His glory. Remember the Christmas song, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. So we see Him veiled in flesh, but we see Him nonetheless. If you've seen me, Philip, you have seen the Father. Now remember, the disciples, these men sitting at table with Jesus, they haven't read John 1. They haven't read John 1. John 1 was written... 50 or 60 years later. They didn't hear the awesome words of the prologue sounded from heaven as Jesus entered the world. They never read these words, never heard these words. So I'm just speculating here. But could it be that this was the moment where the Apostle John began to understand? Could it be that it was here that he sort of slipped a napkin off the table wrote down these words from Jesus, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, and for 50 years reflected on them, pondered them, thought about them, and then finally sat down to write, the only God who is at the Father's side, he's made him known. Could it be that it was just dawning on them that Jesus came in a very real way to reveal and to disclose and to manifest the Father, and that this is the moment when they began to understand. This is testified in other parts of Scripture. Colossians 1, verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. I was away last week. I was at Parkside Church in Cleveland. That's where Alistair Begg is the pastor. Of course, my luck, Alistair Begg was out of town, and so someone else preached. But it's a very good explanation from that intern or whoever he was and what it means that Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Does it mean he had a birthday where he came into existence? Uh, G, uh, excuse me, King David, Psalm, I don't want to say the reference because I'm not sure I remember it. Uh, David was said to be the firstborn of Israel. But David wasn't the firstborn. All his brothers were older than him. He was the youngest. In what sense was he the firstborn? Well, in the sense that he had the status of the firstborn. All the privileges and entitlements of the heir belong to David, and so they belong to Jesus. When we read he's the firstborn of all creation, don't think he had a beginning. He had no beginning. In fact, he was it there in the beginning. But he said to be the firstborn over all creation in the sense of station and status. He is the son, the heir, and to him all things 
belong. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Colossians 1.19, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, another way of saying He's the firstborn, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Jesus Christ as revealed in the Gospels, revealed in the Scriptures, is the radiance of the glory of God. Do you begin to understand why the Apostle John said, we have seen His glory? Glory as of the only Son sent from the Father, full of grace and truth. They saw the radiance of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so this means, brothers and sisters, any God we have other than the one revealed supremely through Jesus Christ is an idol that must be smashed. All idols underfoot be trod. The Lord is God. The Lord is God. Any conception of God we have other than the one revealed to us in and by Jesus is a false God. It's not the God of the Bible. Our God is the God revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Father is unintelligible and unknowable apart from the Son. Study Jesus. Learn about God by looking long and hard at the person of Jesus. What is God's will? What does God want for my life? What does God think about me? What does God think about himself? What does God think about the world? Look at Jesus. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. There is nothing lacking in Jesus. Every bit of God is in Jesus. He lacks nothing that is divine. This is of the utmost importance because we believe that faith, faith in Jesus, faith in Christ, is staking all that we have on all that He is. And if we fail to understand and appreciate all that He is, our faith is dead. We won't be saved. If we don't understand that He is the God-man, He's the only way to the Father, and He is one with the Father. Whoever has seen Him has seen the Father. Our faith is dead, and we're not saved, and we're still in our sins. You are saved by believing in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the God-man. So in closing, let me say to the Christians here, have you noticed, have you observed and appreciated the assumption behind these questions from Thomas and Philip? What's being assumed by these brothers, and they are brothers, what's being assumed? That we need God. We must see the Father, Jesus. We have to know the Father. We have nothing if we don't have the Father. Will you show us the Father? We need to know God. There's no life outside of God. We need God. We have to see Him, to know Him, to taste Him, to experience Him in our lives. Can you show us the way, Jesus? Do you feel that need? I have to know God. 
I must see the Father. I must know the Father. I must have access to the Father. Then hear with comfort and with unspeakable joy the words of Jesus, I am the way to the Father. Your object, Christian, above all else, above all else, it's, it's more important than loving your spouse. It's more important than raising your children. It's more important than your job. It's more important than your 401k. The most important thing in your world, Christian, is to know God more deeply every day. It is the most important thing in life. I'm not saying don't love your spouse. I'm not saying don't love your children. I'm not saying don't work hard. But the most important priority in your life is to know the living God And I think Thomas and Philip appreciated that. We need to know the Father. We need to see the Father, experience life with the Father. Well, if you want to do that, go to Him through Jesus Christ. Enter into the life of God. Jesus is the means by which we experience communion and life and intimacy and relationship with the Father. Now, for those of you, you wouldn't say you're Christians. Maybe a friend brought you here this morning. Or, or maybe you're a child thinking about everything you're hearing in sermons and in Sunday school classes and reading in the Bible and things like that. What, what are you going to do with all of this? The message for you is, is that God has made a way by which sinners just like you can enter into a relationship with Him. It is not God's effort, God's aim through giving His Son into the world to exclude people. When God sent His Son, He did so not to condemn the world, but that through Him the world might be saved. That sinners like you and sinners like me could be reconciled to God. There's a way for you. You don't need to go to hell. You don't need to perish and die in your sins. God is saying there is a way through Jesus Christ by which you can know me, by which you can have eternal life, by which you can be saved and have all your sins forgiven. And, and, and it can be true of you, what was said to these disciples, that a place will be prepared for you, and that where Jesus is going, you can be also, namely, paradise forever with God. He'll come back for you and take you to Himself. You can know God and all the intimacy with which Jesus talks about it here in the Scriptures. You can be God's companion, God's friend, God's child. Enter in to the life of God. You do it by the way of Jesus. Now listen to me. There's lots of other ways you can try. And people will tell you, there's lots of other ways. They're all going to end up in the same place. I tell you on the testimony of the Word of God, on the merits of Christ, There is no other way. Don't be a fool. I don't want to see you on the last day in the presence of God trying to make your own way. Whether that's through your own self-righteousness, whether that's through your own cleverness, uh, if that's through some other code of ethics or system of belief. How terrible, how terrible to appear before God in that day and to learn you, you came in by by an improper path, that you tried to access God by a way of your own invention. It doesn't have to happen that way for you. I tell you this morning about the way that's made through Jesus Christ. 
that through him you can be reconciled to God and could be saved and could have eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, we begin to understand what those officers said in John 7 as they went even to arrest the Lord Jesus. Failing to make the arrest and returning to those who sent them, they said, no man spoke as this man. There's no one like Jesus. No one who says the things that he said did the things that he did. There is no name under heaven by which we can be saved. There's no way other than Christ by which we can come to you. Lord, in your grace and in your mercy, would you move upon each soul now to make manifest before them to open their eyes to the way that is made in Jesus, that they might come to you by that way, pleading the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, pleading his merits, staking all that they are and all that He is. Lord, we pray that all of our hearts would be united, committing ourselves to the way that is made in Jesus, the way to the Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.